Lord, as we come to your word again this evening, we are so grateful for the access that is ours. We know this access to scripture did not come lightly over the centuries. The brave and courageous Christian men and Christian women stood for this word's authority, stood for this word's inspiration, stood for this word giving us the only way to salvation through the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. Many of these individuals laid down their very lives on stakes and were burned alive, killed for this very fundamental conviction. So as we come together tonight in the freedom of the Bahamas to look into the Bible, we don't take it lightly. Also, we're grateful that the Scripture's author lives within us as your blood-bought children. The Spirit of God, at the point of our conversion, came to live inside of us, never to be evicted, and to change us so radically that people will notice that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God would minister the Word of God this evening to the end that the child of God would know victory and the normal Christian life of Spirit-filled power. And we ask these things for your glory, Lord, and only for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Sanctification's outworking. Hope. The bucking stallion has to. The fighting fish has to. The prodigal child has to. The triathlete has to. In fact, every believer has to. Has to what? Has to come to the end of themselves to come to the beginning of a new and better way of living. Romans 7, 24 to 25 are our verses for this evening's sermon. And these two verses, Romans 7, 24 and 25, stand as the critical gateway from Romans 7, 1 through verse 23's personal struggle that the Apostle Paul wrote of after conversion. Romans 7, 24 to 25 stand as the critical and important gateway from the struggle of Romans 7, 1 to 23, the struggle with the law of sin and death, and Romans chapter 8, and all the truth that it teaches us about the freedom that is ours in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so put bluntly and clearly, you simply cannot get to chapter 8's freedom without agreeing with Romans 7, 24, and 25's assertion. You can't live out what Jesus has for you if you don't get to the miserable end of yourself first. And so these gateway verses, Romans 7, 24, and 25, lie before us. Just by way of very quick review for those that were here this morning and teaching for those who could not be here this morning. In the whole concept of me can do Christianity, do it yourself sanctification, try harder holiness, there are three words in verses 23 and 24. The first word is war. The second word still in verse 23 is prisoner. And the third word is wretched in verse 24. Let me read 23 and 24 with you. For I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? We said this morning that for the believer to come into the victory and the Christ life and the Holy Spirit-empowered Christian life and ministry, you have to move from war down to the position of understanding that you're a prisoner of war, the civil war within you, in your own strength and by your own flesh, you're a prisoner. And in fact, you have to go low enough to see that without the Holy Spirit dominating, without the Holy Spirit controlling, without the Holy Spirit empowering you for Christian living, you are wretched. So am I. And so the question of this morning was, are you wretched yet? Have you realized before God that you really are wretched in your own smart strength and abilities to live the Christian life? We have to get to that place of understanding our wretchedness. 
It's not enough to realize we're at war with the flesh and the law of sin and death. It's not enough even to say that we're in a prisoner of war. We have to go further down in our accurate understanding of who we are, that we are wretched in trying to live the Christian life in our own smart skills, stamina, and strength. And so the question of this morning becomes the question of this evening, are you wretched yet? Have you faced it? The spiritual life, the Christian life, the victorious life in Jesus Christ knows a liberation, a liberation from flesh, a liberation from the law of sin and death that has at its hinge point war, prisoner, wretched. And so the question is asked again. We said this morning that in the original language, wretched is a graphic word, uh, teleporos, meaning in Greek dictionary, to be utterly miserable and distressed due to total exhaustion from hard labor. You need to get to that place of understanding that's the way it is. Talked about triathletes this morning, those incredible athletes that in one race swim 2.4 miles, followed by cycling 112 miles, followed by running a marathon 26.2 miles. Triathletes are understandably, suitably, utterly, miserably exhausted at the end of the race, but no more so than the Christian who is trying to live his or her Christian life in their own resources because of the inner traitor called the flesh And because of the downward pull from the law of sin and death, it's constant, relentless, never-ending, that pulls us down. It wants to pull us down as uh, blood-bought children of God wants to pull us down into sins, plural. And so we come tonight again to this gateway, this tremendous two-verse gateway from the defeat, the struggle of fleshly, do-it-yourself Christian living into chapter 8's victory, power, Resurrection power to have consistent testimony and service for Jesus Christ that is chapter 8. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That is the gateway of the last two verses of Romans 7 into the majesty and the wonders of chapter 8. And so this message is for all of us who find ourselves miserably exhausted trying to live our own Christian lives. There's hope. But we must see ourselves as being wretched in our own resources before we can see ourselves desperately needing the Holy Spirit nanosecond to nanosecond of life. And so the question the man in the pulpit has to ask himself and the question Uh, you need to ask yourselves in the pew is, have I ever gotten to the miserable but exciting place of knowing for certain that I'm a wretch? Maybe that'll happen this evening if you've never gotten to that place before. Recall with me that chapter 7 of Romans has presented to us a fact that we're disengaged from the law as a basis of sanctification. It's presented to us a shame that we re-engage ourselves, although Christ has disengaged us from the Old Testament law as a basis for being right with God, we sometimes re-engage ourselves with that law as our principle to try to be separate and holy unto God. There's a fact of chapter 7, there's a shame of chapter 7, thank God there's a hope of chapter 7 tonight, verses 24 and 25. We need, in some cases, that we haven't come to this service yet, having been pinned to the mat by God. If you have been pinned to the mat by God previous to this evening, you know it. And if you have not yet been pinned to the mat as a Christian before this service, may that occur this evening. Hope is a motivating and a comforting reality. Hope is a motivating and a comforting reality. In 1 John 3, verse 2, we have a tremendous hope as as born-again believers outlined for us in 1 John 3, 2. This is what it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, 
and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be, we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him. That's hope. When he appears, we shall be like him because, the verse continues, we shall see him just as he is. That's hope. When you physically die as a Christian and you see the Lord Jesus, your Savior, face to face, you will be made to be like him. You'll be glorified. If the rapture of the church occurs this evening or tomorrow morning or whenever it does occur, and there's no prophetic prophecy yet to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church would take place, it's imminent. If the rapture of the church takes place this evening or tomorrow or whenever it does, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with, to meet those who have come with Christ in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. By the way, that rapture is only a comfort if we don't go through the tribulation because of it. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That's what the Bible teaches. So there's this wonderful hope that we'll be made to be like Christ when we see him, either through physical death or rapture. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who recently went to see Jesus in his 95th or 6th year, he said this, we shall be like him in 1 John 3, 2 means that we shall be sinless, deathless, and spiritually mature. Sinless, deathless, and spiritually mature. That'll be awesome. And that's our hope. That is our hope. That's our ultimate hope. But praise God, we also have an immediate hope. We just don't have a future hope of glorification. We have a present time hope. A present time hope that we can know victory over the flesh. Victory over the law of sin and death, victory in Jesus Christ. And our present time hope is living victoriously, even though the law of sin and death is constantly pulling down on us like gravity. But it doesn't have to successfully pull down on you to have you commit acts of sinning. There's a present time hope that will see you over that and past that. And we're going to talk about that this evening. If you let your eyes go, please, to the first two verses of Romans 8. These are the verses that the gateway verses we're studying tonight get us into, the first two verses of Romans 8 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The gateway is needed from Romans 7's struggle after conversion. The gateway is needed from me can do Christianity, from that kid in the high chair in the Dixie House restaurant in Dallas, Texas, whose parents let him feed himself when he's nowhere near being ready to feed himself, and there was Gerber food everywhere. The gateway from that kind of me can do, do it yourself, Christian living in Romans 7 is Romans 7, 24 and 25 which will walk us through as we appropriate them, will walk us through into Romans 8, 1 and 2. Put another way, we've used another metaphor, that if your life is a bicycle, Jesus Christ died and rose for you to give you the precious gift of the Holy Spirit that he would pedal and steer your bicycle. The shame of our lives is when we push the Holy Spirit to the back banana seat of our bicycle and try to drive our bicycle ourselves. That's when the law of sin and death in our flesh really takes the bicycle places we don't want to go. And so in these gateway verses of verses 24 and 25, in verse 24, Paul is like a sweaty, broken stallion. In verse 24, Paul is like an exhausted, hooked by the side of the boat, barracuda. In verse 24, Paul is like a miserable, defeated, humbled, runaway child come home. In verse 24, Paul is like a miserable, distressed, and exhausted triathlete. In verse 24, Paul is sensing his captivity to sin and his utter helplessness to break free, and that's why he needs the Holy Spirit. In verse 24, Paul is miserable, Paul is distressed. Paul is exhausted. He's at that place. But he is also at the very same time as being in that place, in the place of near deliverance. 
The person who comes to the end of him or herself is very, very close to the deliverance that God has intended for living the Christian life. But we have to come to the end of ourselves in order to come to the beginning of the Holy Spirit ruling us. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Will you notice four things with me which are true of Christian living? Four things we're going to see in these verses that are true of Christian living. Four things that are true of your Christian living. Four things that are true of my Christian living. Number one, it's a dominance or an omission. And I'll expand these. Second, your Christian life and mine, it's a pointing up or it's a pulling down. It's a supernatural or it's a natural. It's a freedom or captivity. We're going to unpack each of these in this sermon, but I want you to see that your Christian life is either dominance or omission. It's either pointing up or pulling down. It's either supernatural or it's natural. Your Christian life is either freedom or it's captivity. So let's get after these four things from the text. Number one, Christian living is either a dominance by the Holy Spirit or an omission of the Holy Spirit. Your Christian living is either a dominance by the Holy Spirit or an omission of the Holy Spirit. In verses 1 to 24 of Romans 7, if you read Romans 7, verse 1 through 24, the word I, the pronoun I, appears 28 times. My appears six times. Me appears 12 times. The person of the Holy Spirit in these verses is mentioned one time. And that mentioning of the Holy Spirit in these verses happens before he starts talking about his struggle. In verse 6. And so in the verses of Romans 7, which paint the ugly picture of me can do Christianity and its intense struggles with the law of sin and death and the flesh and failure, in these very verses, the word I is 28 times, my six times, me is 12 times, and the person of the Holy Spirit is only mentioned once. Now watch this, please. Any Christian... Even the great apostle Paul will dismally and uh, chronically struggle with sin and will fail if that Christian X's out the power of the Holy Spirit offered to live the Christian life. This is practical. This is very plain, straightforward. In the daily living out of our Christian lives, we are either going to be dominated by the Holy Spirit, which is God's will, or we are going to omit him, ignore him, pay no heed to him. Those are the options in your Christian life and mine, either to be dominated by the Holy Spirit or to omit him. Of course, victorious Christian living is dominated by the Holy Spirit. And so the first observation about Christian living in our text is that the Christian living is either a dominance by the Holy Spirit or an omission of the Holy Spirit. The second thing in your outlines, the second point, Christian living is either a pointing up or a pulling down. Christian living is either a pointing up or a pulling down. Will you notice that there are two laws mentioned and in play in Romans chapter 7. There are two laws. The law of God, Old Testament law of God, and the law of sin and death. There are two varieties of laws mentioned continuously in Romans chapter 7. The law of God and the law of sin and death. Verses 22 to 23 mention both of these laws. Let's see it. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There are two kinds of laws referenced in these verses in Romans 7 that lead up to 24 and 25, and they are the law of God and the law of sin. The law of God, of course, is the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that were attached to that for the nation of Israel. The law of God was the constitution for the nation of Israel found in the Old Testament. And the law of sin is what we've been trying to teach over several sermons, that it is a principle, it is a force, It is a power. It's the law of sin and death as a principle that causes us to sin. We sin plural because there's a law of sin and death singular. And when you see sin in Romans singular, it's the law of sin and death that's being referenced. And the law of sin and death, singular sin, is pulling you and me constantly down, wanting us to engage in sins, plural. And so there's two laws at play here. One is the law of God, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, and the other is the law of sin, or sometimes called the law of sin and death. We have to distinguish carefully between those two laws as we study Romans 7. We said before in previous sermons that the law of God is like an MRI machine. It tells us that we fall short of God. As an MRI machine, God's law only can point out our sin problem, but the law of God cannot fix it. The law of God is good, useful, important as a diagnostic that we can't keep it, so we're sinners and we need a savior. The law of God is like an MRI machine. But we need Jesus Christ, his cross, his empty tomb, his salvation offered by grace, and then the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit to fix our sin problem. The law of sin and death is like that pull of gravity on the airplane at the Nassau airport that's bound for Boston. The same mass on the aircraft is being pulled to the center of the earth by the law of gravity while it sits on the tarmac. And then when the engines are are started up, brought to full speed, the thrust of those engines, the flaps of the aircraft, then the law of aerodynamics takes over and overrules the law of gravity that is still in play. And that beautiful large aircraft flies from Nassau to Boston. The law of sin and death is constantly wanting to pull you down into sins, but praise God, the law of life in Jesus Christ and his finished work and the gift of the Holy Spirit allows us to soar above that downward pull into sinning to know victory, testimony, and bring glory to God. Back to verses 22 and 23. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So moment to moment, brother or sister, your Christian living is either involves God's law pointing you up to your need of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit, or your Christian life involves the law of sin and death pulling you down into specific sins. And that's a moment-to-moment proposition. Let's review a bit. So far we've seen that Christian living is either dominance by the Holy Spirit or an omission of the Holy Spirit. And we should choose Holy Spirit dominance or we'll be defeated in our Christian living. We've also seen that Christian living involves either pointing up, the law of God pointing us up to our dire need of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit to live within us, or it is a being pulled down by the law of sin and death. There's a third thing about Christian living in your outlines. Christian living is either supernatural or natural. Christian living is either supernatural or natural. And if you look at verse 25 now, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Christian living is either supernatural or it is natural. 
Now, I hope that you noticed that in these, this uh, verse 25, that me- something mentions the mind and the flesh. The mind and the flesh are mentioned in verse 25, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So mind and flesh appear in verse 25. And it is pointed out that Paul's mind served the law of God, while Paul's flesh served the law of sin. Let me tell you what verse 25 is not teaching. Verse 25 is not teaching that our minds are all good and our bodies are all bad. It's not teaching that. It's not teaching that your mind is a good thing always and your body is a bad thing always. It's not teaching that. The fact is that minds and bodies can serve God and minds and bodies can serve evil. That depends on our choices. Minds and bodies are morally neutral. It's what we choose to do with our minds and our bodies that makes all the difference. And so the Greek word, which is translated mind here, is nous. And in Greek, the word nous, its dictionary meaning means reflective intelligence, calculated desires. Paul is saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my reflective intelligence, with my calculated desires, I'm serving the law of God. Now think about this with me. Mind being understood as reflective intelligence and calculated desires means it's a very human thing. Part of being made in God's image is we have this kind of capacity. We have a a mind that reflectively is intelligent and that a mind that calculates our desires. Let me illustrate. Your dog isn't capable of reflective intelligence. He doesn't have that kind of a mind from God. Your parakeet can't calculate her desires. She can't prioritize what she wants. It's only human beings made in the image of God who have minds capable of reflective intelligence. It is the mind that is capable of reflective intelligence that asks questions like, Why am I here? Am I realizing my full potential? Were my motives right? How do I grieve God? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? How can I worship God? Where can I worship God? Why should I worship God? These are all questions of the human reflective intelligence that Paul's referencing here in verse 25. It's only human beings, furthermore, who have minds that can calculate desires. Your dog knows that he wants food, but he won't ever calculate if he's eaten too much or too fast. Your dog won't discern from her free time versus her chore time. Your dog won't figure out how it's best to spend her free time tomorrow afternoon at two to three. Your dog doesn't keep a daytimer or a calendar or a smartphone. Your dog doesn't differentiate between today and tomorrow and yesterday and a week from today. Your dog doesn't have a mind that can calculate desires. Your dog never senses her own mortality. You get the point. Having this kind of a mind is part of being made in God's image. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, my reflective intelligence, and my calculated desires. Paul was saying in verse 25 that his mind, his reflective intelligence, his desired and reasoned desires and calculated desires wanted to obey God's law. That's supernatural. That's 
a God thing positively impacting his reflective intelligence and his calculated desires. That's supernatural. But there's also a natural problem. Paul had a natural problem, as do we. It's called the flesh. The natural problem of the born-again Christian is the flesh. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, I said this morning, bears repeating, that flesh in Scripture is not the meat on our bones. That is not flesh. Flesh is the combination of our bodies and our souls when they are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let me teach it another way. We have a magnificent creation of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We have a body that has so many different functions. It's a miracle that any of us are ever healthy. This body is a miraculous invention of God's to allow us to interact with our environment through our senses. We also have the wonderful capacity of a soul. God created you with a soul, an intellect, an emotion, and a will, a thinker, a feeler, and a chooser. That's part of being made in God's image. But until a person knows Christ as life, Savior, and Lord, that part that is dead is called the spirit. The spirit is the part of a human being that is dead until conversion, but when made alive, the part of a person who allows communion and fellowship and worship and prayer with God, the creator. And so there's one God existing co-equally and co-eternally in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one of you made in the image of God to have three equal parts, a body so you can relate to your environment, a soul that allows you to have personality to relate to other people, and a spirit that would allow you to relate to God when your spirit becomes made alive in regeneration, conversion, in Christ. People without Jesus, their spirits are as dead as doorposts. They have a body that's alive. They have a soul, personality, intellect, emotion, and will that is alive, but at their core, they're dead. Ephesians 2.1, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so people without Christ, all they have to live out of is their flesh, their body in concert with their souls. When we come to know Christ as Savior, our spirit is enlivened. We're given Christ as Lord and Savior and life. That enlivened spirit allows us to fellowship with God, commune with God, serve God, love God, walk with God, etc., but there are some Christians with enlivened spirits that still live out of their flesh. There are believers who have enlivened spirits. They do not allow the Holy Spirit to control their enlivened spirit, their soul, and their body. Instead, they live out of their own resources. They pedal their own bicycle. They sit in their own high chair and feed themselves, and they're a mess. Their spirit is alive, but the Holy Spirit has not been given control by them of their spirit their soul, and their body. And they, Christians, are no better off, really, than the pagan who still has a dead spirit if the Christian doesn't let the Holy Spirit control their spirit, their soul, and their body. And so when a person who doesn't know Jesus is living, all they can live is out of their flesh because their spirit's dead. But when a Christian comes to Christ, we have an enlivened spirit. The normal Christian life is to allow the Holy Spirit to control us from the inside out, from our spirit that he'd have control of that, for our soul he'd have control of that, and for our body he'd have control of that. He could ride our bicycle. And so the flesh is all that the unregenerate person can live out of, but the flesh is what some believers choose to live out of by not allowing the Holy Spirit to control them. And this is what Paul was admitting in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my reflective intelligence and calculated desires am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, my senses, my personality, uncontrolled by the Holy Spirit, I am going according to the law of sin. 
So flesh is a problem. It was a problem before you were saved. It remains a problem after you're saved. Let me say it another way. Flesh is the collection of our five senses and our intellect, emotion, and our wills when they're not governed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's flesh. Flesh, furthermore, flesh is never going to fight itself. Flesh will never eradicate flesh. Flesh is not ever enemy to itself. Flesh is always enemy to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always enemy to the flesh. The flesh is always set to the law of sin and death's wavelength. That's the only station the flesh plays on its radio, the law of sin and death. Flesh is a chameleon. Your flesh perhaps looks different than mine. Some of your flesh looks even positive, and we pat you on the back at church, but it's flesh. Most of our flesh looks negative, but flesh is a chameleon. And the principal thing that flesh is trying to do in our lives as Christians is to control. It doesn't want the Holy Spirit to control us. The flesh wants to control us. The flesh is the traitor that lives within the born-again Christian. The flesh is the Trojan horse, if you're familiar with that story. They they rolled that huge wooden horse into a fortified city, and inside the horse were the uh, enemy soldiers. And when night fell and everybody thought this gift of a great wooden horse is magnificent, while they went to sleep, the soldiers came out of the belly of the horse and took the city. That's your flesh. Flesh is the cause of the civil war within me and you. And flesh will not be solved as a problem until we're glorified, until we are made to be like Jesus, until we see Jesus face to face. I wonder why God left his flesh. Could have zapped it. When we were saved, he could have just zapped our flesh. Gone, done. Walk with me, enjoy me, serve me, no problems, no civil wars. Why would God leave flesh in us by his design? Why would God will it that we would have a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year traitor living inside of us? Why? Number one, I believe it reminds us many times of every day of our need for the Holy Spirit. Number two, I believe him leaving us with flesh causes us to better pray. Number three, having flesh keeps us humble when we want to compare ourselves to lost people. When you see, when you see a lost person doing something reprehensible to God, you ought to stop and say, have I done anything similar? Am I capable of doing it? Battling our flesh should keep us humble before God and before people. God left us with flesh because it makes us long for Christ's appearing. When Christ appears, flesh has had its day. It's over. And so we're seeing, church family, that on this third point, that Christian living is either supernatural or natural. Supernatural Christian living is normal. Supernatural Christian living is rooted in the Holy Spirit and not rooted in the flesh. Supernatural Christian living uses a renewed mind, a la Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Supernatural Christian living is the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Supernatural Christian living is the Holy Spirit going to war with the flesh. Romans 8, 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
supernatural Christian living is Holy Spirit addressing the flesh living. Galatians 5, 19 to 23 tells us what the deeds of our flesh look like if we let our flesh dominate long enough. They'll pop up like bad weeds in your vegetable garden. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the the things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then the beautiful contrast of the victorious Christian life where the Spirit of God is driving the bicycle, controlling the spirit, the soul, and the body of the believer. The beautiful contrastive fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You might picture it this way. There are two dogs inside of you. One is white and one is gray. The white dog is good-natured and helps people. The gray dog is mean and bites people. The dog that prevails in you is the one you feed and the one you do not starve. Feed the Holy Spirit's control of you and starve the flesh's dominance of you. I don't think you hunt pheasants here. You probably have other uh, game that you hunt. But where I come from, pheasants are a popular game bird and uh, a sport bird, but you also eat them, pheasant under glass and so on. The thing about a pheasant hunter is he needs a pheasant hunting dog because pheasants would rather run than fly. And so in the underbrush, when you come upon a pheasant, he won't fly. He'll run very fast on the ground. And you have to have a dog that knows that pheasant is running and chases him and puts him up so you can shoot him. If you're a pheasant hunter, you need a pheasant hunting dog. Well, there was this pheasant hunter who bought a dog to hunt pheasants with. And after only two trips to the field, it became clear that this hunting dog was only interested in chasing and hunting rabbits and not pheasants. And the hunter had paid a lot of good money for this purebred pheasant hunting dog, so he kept bringing him out to the field on his hunting trips and tried to retrain this dog to put up pheasants instead of to chase rabbits. Dog didn't change. And the man wound up time and time and time again hunting rabbits instead of pheasants. So one day, he stepped back from his situation far enough to see that he had better leave that no good for pheasant hunting dog at home. And once he did that, he had a lot of fun and success hunting pheasants. The point in this illustration is don't let your flesh hunt down things you're not after. Leave it at home. Don't let your flesh to cause you to pursue things that Jesus doesn't want you to pursue. One more thing in verse 25, please. By way of review, and then we'll get to the one more thing. By way of review, Christian living is either a dominance by the Holy Spirit or an admission of the Holy Spirit. Number two, Christian living either involves being point pointed up or being pulled down. Number three, Christian living is either a supernatural or natural. And fourth and last, in verse 25, we see that Christian living is either freedom or captivity. Christian living is either freedom or captivity. What was verse 24's desperate question asked by the miserable Apostle Paul? What was verse 24's burning question asked by the chronically failing Apostle Paul? What was verse 24's ringing question asked by the nearly delivered Paul? This is the question. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will set me free 
from the body of this death? Who will set me free from the body of this death? That was Paul's desperate, burning, rigging, and urgent question. And may it be our desperate, burning, ringing, and urgent question. Who will set me free from the body of this death? There was a practice, I'm told, in the day that Paul was on earth, that when you murdered someone and you got caught, they would strap the body of the person you killed onto you until its infection and disease killed you. This practice originated in Tarsus, where the Apostle Paul happened to be from. I think that's what he has in view here. When he asks, in verse 24, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will cut my dead man and his flesh off of me so I can live a healthy, happy, productive life? What will get me out of the me-can-do, do-it-yourself, sanctification, Christian life that's destined for frustration and failure? That's the question. Paul asked it first, and we ask it second tonight. Who will set me free from the body of this death? There's an answer. It's in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on, my, on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Did you notice the answer to the question, who will set you free from the body of your death? God, verse 25. Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25. And if you let your eyes skip down to verse 2 of chapter 8, the spirit of life. This problem, church, is so big this problem of being freed up from the defeat of trying to live the Christian life in our own resources, smarts, and stamina is such a big and pressing problem, it takes all three persons of the Godhead to solve it. God, verse 25. Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 25. And the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, 8, verse 2. That's who's going to set us free from the body of this death. Christian living is either a freedom or a captivity. And this is simple. This is not rocket science. When we live out of our flesh, we are slaves to the law of sin. We're captives, even as Christians. But when we live out of the resources and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are free to do God's fulfilling will that's called that good, acceptable, and perfect will in Romans 12 too. So when we live instead out of the resources and power and control of the Holy Spirit, we have freedom. So what do you want? Do you want to pander to your flesh and have captivity, frustration, discouragement, and be a poor testimony for Jesus? Or do you want to say, I want to live out of the Holy Spirit's resources. I want to be controlled by him every word out of my mouth, every thought in my head, every decision I make to spend time, how I spend money, how I raise my kids, how I treat senior citizens, how I look at people in poverty in NASA. I want the Holy Spirit to control everything about me. The choice is ours. We can know captivity as Christians, presenting the members of our body to the law of sin and death through our flesh, or we can walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We can be controlled by God, the Holy Spirit. And we do not have to be responsive to the law of sin and death's downward pull into sinning. We can let the Holy Spirit ride our bicycle. We can let the Holy Spirit control us, or we can crawl into that High chair with the Gerber baby products and just be a mess. And everything around us is a mess because we're trying to do it ourselves, Christianity. That's the choice. And friends, 
I've been a believer for 53 years. That's been the struggle in my life all 53 years. And it will be that way for each of us until we see Jesus through physical death or the rapture. Now, in closing, do you remember what I taught you earlier in this message, that back in chapter 7, the verses that chronicled the Apostle Paul's tremendous struggle against his flesh and the law of sin and death, do you remember that I said that in those verses, the word I appeared 28 times, the word my appeared six times, the word me is mentioned 12 times, and the word the Holy Spirit was mentioned once? And only once was the Holy Spirit mentioned in those verses before the struggle with sin was documented. Now, if you go with me and look at chapter 8, which is the, not the struggling with sin, chapter 7, but the living above sin and the strength and power of the Holy Spirit's control, when you go to chapter 8, guess what? The term the Spirit, 11 times. The term the Spirit of God, two times. The term, the spirit of Christ, one time. The term, the spirit of him, one time. The term, his spirit, one time. And so that totals 16 references to the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. 16. Do you know how many times the word I, my, me appear in chapter 8 in the victorious Christian living's chapter? How many times does the word I, my, or me appear in chapter 8? That would be zero. That would be zero times. This is no coincidence that the chapter struggling with sin has 46 references to self and one reference to the Holy Spirit. And it is no coincidence that the chapter on victorious Christian living makes 16 mentions of the Holy Spirit and zero mentions of self. Andrew Murray has been a blessing to the Church of Jesus Christ for many years. And in his book, Absolute Surrender, I want to read to you a couple of excerpts. Andrew Murray, Absolute Surrender. God does not work by his spirit as he works by by a blind force in nature. He leads his people on as reasonable, intelligent beings. And therefore, when he wants to give us that the Holy Spirit whom he has promised... He brings us first to the end of self, to the conviction that though we have been striving to obey the law, we have failed. And when we have come to the end of that, then he shows us that in the Holy Spirit, we have power of obedience, power of victory, and power of real holiness. Still, Andrew Murray, absolute surrender, quote, I want to bring this to a point. Remember, dear friends, that we, that we need, that what we need is to come to a decision and action. There are scriptures in two very sorts of Christians. The Bible speaks of Romans, in Romans of, and Corinthians and Galatians, about yielding to the flesh, and that is the life of tens of thousands of believers. All their lack of joy in the Holy Spirit and their lack of liberty he gives is just owing to the flesh. The Spirit is within them, but the flesh rules the life. To be led by the Spirit of God is what they need. Would to God that I could make every child of his realize what it means that the everlasting God has given his dear son, Jesus Christ, to watch over you every day, and that what you have to do is to trust, and that The work of the Holy Spirit is to enable you every moment to remember Jesus and to trust him. The Spirit has come to keep the link with him unbroken every moment. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. We are so accustomed to think that the Holy Spirit is a luxury for special times or for special ministers and men, but the Holy Spirit is necessary for every believer every moment of the day. Andrew Murray, absolute surrender. And so I finish with the question I started with. Are you wretched yet? 
Don't stop short at war. Don't stop short at prisoner. Are you wretched yet? Have you gotten to the utterly miserable distress due to your total exhaustion from hard labor to live the Christian life on your own strength? If you're distressed tonight, good. If you're totally exhausted, excellent. You're right on the edge of coming to Christ as life, coming to live the the Christian life in the power of the Spirit. To be dominated by the Holy Spirit. To let him pedal and steer your bicycle. I know I gave this poem to you this morning, but I just think it wraps up what I'm trying to teach you from God's word so beautifully. Listen carefully. Under the law with its tenfold lash, learning, alas, how true, that the more I tried, the sooner I died, while the law cried, you, you, you. Hopelessly still did the battle rage, O wretched man, my cry, and deliverance sought by some penance bought, while my soul cried, I, I, I. Then came a day when my struggle ceased, and trembling in every limb at the foot of a tree where one died for me, I sobbed out, him, him, him. I want to pray But I want to pray specifically for any here tonight. The Spirit of God is bringing you to the realization that you've been trying to live the Christian life in your own resources. If you would like me to specifically pray for you, I invite you to stand where you are and I will pray for you. You're saying, Pastor, I I don't want to live in my own resources anymore. I haven't been doing a very good job living in my own resources, and I've been frustrated. Truth be known, I sometimes feel like I want to quit. I can't do it. I feel exhausted tonight. I feel desperate tonight. I feel miserable tonight, and I know that I'm on the bridge that only Jesus can make for me between chapter 7 and chapter 8. That's you. I just invite you to stand so I can pray for you. Thank you. Let's pray for these and for all of us. Lord, I lift to you each precious child of yours standing as an act of humility, as an act of dependence and obedience. And I pray that in an unusual and powerful way that this yielding that they have made to you would be used of you to bring them to the position of living the Christian life in your resources with consistency and with joy, with humility and with victory. Lord, for these that are standing and for all of us seated or standing, we pray tonight that our Christian lives would be dominated by the Holy Spirit. We don't need more of him. He needs more of us. May we give more of us for him to control. And Lord, we pray that we would see our Christian lives as either being pointed up to our sufficient Savior and His Spirit, or that we would see that we have to avoid letting those inner fleshly considerations to pull us down into sinning. Lord, we pray that we would have supernatural Christian lives, lives that cannot simply be explained by natural things. Lord, you said that be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, Lord, that just as a drunk looks odd to someone who's sober, that when we walk in the Holy Spirit, we will look odd to people that are not filled and walking by the Holy Spirit, sometimes even within the church. Lord, may our Christian lives be lives lived in freedom, freedom to obey you with love, freedom to serve you with joy, freedom to have no other gods before you, freedom from the constraints and the tetherings of our flesh in response to the law of sin and death. Lord, give us freedom. You've come to set us free, Lord Jesus. May we be truly free in you. And so, Lord, I thank you for those that are here tonight. I thank you for all that you are doing and you will do in our lives. And, Lord, we pray that 
as we move now from chapter 7 to chapter 8 in the Lord's will next time we're together, that it would be a wonderful transition to know that victory and that joy and that power, the resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead at, at live and active in our lives. So Lord, bless these that are standing in an unusual way. Encourage their hearts. Confirm for them this decision in a multitude of ways this week and beyond. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the credit, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. God bless you each and every one. Thank you.